Welcome to today's Advent Scripture reading and devotion, where we are fixing our minds and hearts on our blessed hope, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's December 21st, and we are quickly approaching Christmas. As with the rest of the readings this week, we are looking at love and continuing from yesterday in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Today we'll be reading verses 8 through 13. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Love never ends. But if there are prophecies, they will pass away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But whenever the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I set aside the things of a child. For now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know completely, just as I have also been completely known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Today's devotion is called The Greatest, and it was written by Sinclair Ferguson. Everyone agrees. Faith is admirable, hope is wonderful, but love is the greatest. There are songs about faith and words about hope, but the songs and words about love easily surpass them in number and in eloquence. But why is love the greatest? Is it just because Paul says so here? On Christmas Day this year, as every year some TV channel will show a rerun of one or other of the movie versions of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. It is a quintessentially Dickensian novel and has given the English language one of its most memorable nouns, Scrooge. The story touches something deep within us because of the way it describes the transformation of a mean and miserly heart into one of sympathy and love. But if we want to know and learn what Christmas means and about the meaning of love, we would be wiser to read someone who was an almost exact contemporary of Dickens, Sir James Young Simpson, who lived from 1811 to 1870. James Young Simpson was born in Bathgate in central Scotland. From his early days, he seemed destined for a stellar career. A brilliant student, he completed his final medical exams at the age of 18 and had to wait another three years before he could graduate. His accomplishments over his lifetime were such that the day of his funeral was declared a holiday, and it said that 100,000 people lined the streets of Edinburgh on the way to Warriston Cemetery where he was buried the family having declined Westminster Abbey. James Young Simpson is best known today because he was the first surgeon to use chloroform as an anesthetic. It used to 
experiment on themselves and some friends to test the anesthetic properties of new chemicals. But in his own day, Simpson was also well known because of his Christian faith. He well understood why Paul wrote that love is the greatest because he understood the gospel. He explained it very simply in a little essay entitled, My Substitute. When I was a boy at school, I saw a sight I can never forget. A man tied to a cart, dragged before the people's eyes through the streets of my native town, his back torn and bleeding from the lash. It was a shameful punishment. For many offenses? No, for one offense. Did any of the townsmen offer to divide the lashes with him? No, he who committed the offense bore the penalty all alone. It was the penalty of a changing human law, for it was the last instance of its infliction. When I was a student at the university, I saw another sight I cannot forget. A man brought out to die. His arms were pinioned. His face was already as pale as death. Thousands of eager eyes were on him as he came up from the jail in sight. Did any man ask to die in his room? Did any friend come and loose the ropes and say, put it around my neck, I'll die instead? No. He underwent the sentence of the law. For many offenses? No. For one offense. He had stolen a money parcel from a stagecoach. He broke the law at one point and died for it. It was the penalty of a changing human law in this case also. It was the last instance of capital punishment being inflicted for that offense. I saw another sight. It matters not when. Myself a sinner standing on the brink of ruin, deserving naught but hell. For one sin? No. For many, many sins committed against the unchanging laws of God. But again, I looked and I saw Jesus, my substitute, scourged in my stead and dying on the cross for me. I looked and wept and was forgiven. And it seemed to me to be my duty to tell you of that Savior and to see if you will also, not also look and live. And how simple it all becomes when God opens the eye. A friend who lately came from Paris told me of an English groom there, a very careless old man who had, during a severe illness, been made to feel that he was a sinner. He dared not die as he was. The clergyman whom he sent for got tired of visiting him, having told him all then he knew of a way of salvation. But one Sunday afternoon, the groom's daughter waited in the vestry after church, saying, You must come once more, sir. I cannot see my father again without you. I can tell you nothing new, said the preacher, but I may take the sermon I have been preaching and read it to him. The dying man lay as before in anguish, thinking of his sins and whither they must carry him. My friend, I have come to read to you the sermon I have just preached. First, I shall tell you of the text. He was wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, 5. Now I shall read. Hold, said the dying man, I have it. Read no more. He was wounded for my transgressions. Soon after, he died rejoicing 
in Christ. In the incarnation of the Son became a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53, 3. But we are not justified or adopted into God's family or sanctified or glorified simply because the Son of God shared our flesh and our sorrows. Yes, that means he can sympathize with us in our weakness because he experienced it. But he came to accomplish much more, something we could never do for ourselves. He came to die for us. Only when we can say he was wounded for our transgressions have we grasped the meaning of the gospel and the wonder of love. This is the heart of the matter, as Sir James Young Simpson saw so clearly. This is what we should never forget on Christmas Eve and on Christmas Day. The Son of God was born for us in order to die for us. When we see that, then we have begun to understand love, and then we discover the joyful truth of poet and pastor John Donne's words. Whom God loves, he loves to the end, and not to their end, and to their death, but to his end. And his end is that he might love them more. For this reason, love came down at Christmas. Thank you for joining us. Merry Christmas and God bless.